0: Thank you, Chris. So good to have Chris back today. We made him read scripture in both services, so appreciate you doing that. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 18. We're going to be looking right at the passage that he just read for us. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab a blue one that's near you. There should be one in the seat back in front of you or close to you. Uh, we want you to be able to follow along and know that, that what we're talking about comes straight from the Word of God. It's not our opinion. Uh, before we get in that, let let's, I me mean, ask you just to join me in a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. God, we thank you for all the work that you've already done, uh, not only here, but around the world today, God. We thank you that your mercies and compassions and graces are new every single day for us. And so we pray, God, as we open your word, as we uh, unpack this section in John 18, Lord, that you would be the one who speaks, that it would not return to you void, um, but God, it would accomplish everything that you set forth for it to accomplish this morning. And we ask that you get all the glory from it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you encounter something that is totally new and unique to you, it's really hard to forget. I've lived in Indiana my whole life. So when I was driving south uh, one night a few years ago on Clinton Street out here and, and a deer jumped out of nowhere and rammed right into the passenger side of my car, I certainly wasn't expecting it that night. But I wasn't shocked right, because it's just part of driving Indiana. The sheriff's deputy that arrived to process the scene wasn't surprised. The three or four different people who all stopped and tried to beat each other to take the dead deer home weren't surprised. By the way, that was the night, I grew up in a small town called Cloverdale. That was the night I learned that the only difference between Terre Haute and Cloverdale was size, because that was such a Cloverdale thing to do, to have multiple people try to steal deer from each other, right? But this is just a part of driving in Indiana, all right? I'm sure many of you in this room have been in a car that was hit or had hit a deer. But there's another incident I had while driving that I'll never, ever forget. Uh, it was Thanksgiving Day a few years ago when Chris and I were heading to my aunt's house in Eminence, and we're driving on a road, it's a highway 42, it's 55 mile per hour speed limit, and, it, and, it's, and it's about, it's a little between 5 and 6 p.m., which on a cloudy November day is dusk, I start, you're just starting to lose some visibility. I'm driving down a straightaway, I come over the crest of a hill and I can see a shadowy figure up ahead. I can't make out what it is, but it, it's enough for me to just take my foot off the gas and, and start to slow down. But I didn't slam on the brakes until I heard my wife yell one word, Cow! So I pumped the brakes, so I slammed on them, when we come, we, I mean, we leave tire traction. and come to a screeching halt, and we still don't stop in time as our front bumper actually hits this cow, right? And, and this thing is massive. It's so huge that all it did was just kind of bump it a little, and I'm not kidding you, the cow just turned and looked at me, <laughs> like, what, like I was the one at fault, right? And, and then he crosses the road with 10 or 11 of his buddies that would gotten loose, and and, and uh, you know, I calm down, you got the adrenaline of the accident, your hands are shaking, and we drive, and finally, about 30 seconds later, I look at Corinne, and I go, wait a minute, did we really just hit a cow? Right? Because when you see something that you've never seen before, it makes it that much more memorable. But sometimes, human beings just don't handle new things well. Right? Now, surely, there are some of us who thrive in change. Some of us don't want to be stuck in the same cycles ad nauseum all the time, but others of us have a personality that we just don't like change at all, especially if we see it as a threat. There's a great example of this in history. Not everyone was a fan of railroads when they were put into place in America. There's a letter written in 1829 uh, by Martin Van Buren. He was the governor of New York at the time. and He wrote a letter to President Andrew Jackson, and here's what it said. He said, as you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour. And I love this part. By engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers... Roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. That is a man who's afraid of of trains, right? The Almighty, he closed the letter by saying, the Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speeds. Now I know what you're thinking. If Martin Van Buren had lived in Terre Haute, and he'd seen all our trains go so slowly that they always come to a stop, he would have never been afraid of them, Right? You see, people are often threatened by something they've never seen before, and as we've made our way through the book of John together, we've seen Jesus interact with the people and leaders of his day, and the one thing that we can be certain of this morning is this, they'd never seen anything like Jesus. They'd never heard anything like Jesus. They'd never experienced anything like Jesus. He taught things that that no one had ever taught. He performed miracles that no one had ever witnessed. He valued things that no one in his day gave value to. And so everywhere Jesus went, he caused a stir because he didn't bow at the altar of any sort of cultural, or religious expectations of his day. He came on a mission from God, and that included upsetting the status quo and fixing some things. And this is among, if not the chief reason of why he was so hated by some people. Jesus Christ was different. He was set apart. He was unique. He was better, and they hated him for it. And we're at the point in the story in the book of john where we get to see the culmination of their hatred come full circle the religious leaders of israel by the time we get to where we are in john 18 they've already arranged his betrayal with judas they've already arrested him they've already put him through what was just a joke of a trial and in today's passage that chris read for you they're bringing jesus to pilate hoping that rome is going to do the dirty work of killing him for them and even though Jesus' public teaching ministry is over. We can still learn so much from watching his actions and his interactions with people, and from every single time he speaks. And today, what we're going to get to see is him reveal an aspect of his kingdom that greatly impacts you, your life and my life today. Because all of us who belong to him are also called to be unique, to be set apart and different, just like he was. In verse 28, where Chris started reading, we're told that by the time that they'd wrapped up their own trials and decided that Jesus was to be condemned to die, they take him to the palace of the Roman governor, Pilate. Now, Pilate didn't always stay in Jerusalem, right? But as the Roman governor of that area, he would come and stay in Jerusalem whenever there would be these big Jewish feasts, right? Because as Pilate, as the Roman governor, had one job, he had one assignment from Rome above everything else, he was to squash any sort of rebellion against Rome, And one of the groups of people that Rome kept the closest eye on was the Jewish people. Because Rome knew of the prophecies they believed in. Rome knew that the Jews as a people were living in anticipation of this coming Messiah. And the Jews of that day wrongly believed that the Messiah would be an earthly king. And so they believed that this earthly king was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and established Israel as the dominant nation of the world so Pilate is put in charge of an entire group of people whose greatest hope in their life is that they will one day overthrow Rome this is a tense assignment that meant that whenever there would be a large gathering of Jews of any kind such as the Passover which is happening in John 18 Pilate needed to be there And he wasn't there alone, he would be there with a whole lot of soldiers, and if there's any inkling of rebellion, any sort of uprising, ever even a rowdy assembly at all, he would send soldiers in to crush it before it ever gathered momentum. So you can imagine how on alert he is, and imagine how annoyed he is when a a whole group of Jewish leaders show up with a prisoner outside his palace first thing in the morning. But it's his job, so he goes out to meet him. Look at verse 29. So, so, Pilate came out to them and asked, "What charges are you bringing against this man?" If he were not a criminal, they replied, "We would not have handed him over to you." Pilate said, "Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law." But we have no right to execute anyone," they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now, Pilate has—you can tell just by his phrase—that he just has so very little time for this, right? So he skips all the small talk, no greetings. He just wants to know what are you here for? What are the charges? And there's just one problem that question. This man is innocent. Right? Jesus is innocent. And any sort of made-up charge these Jewish religious leaders could come up with would be a violation of some Jewish religious law and not Roman law. And therefore, Pilate just wouldn't care about it at all. And these leaders know this. So they don't really answer Pilate's question, do they? You want to say, what is the charge? he said, well, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Well, Pilate's really disinterested now. All right, so he tells them, just get, get out of here. Just take him and judge him by your own law. And then they get his attention a little more when they say that they want this Jesus executed. Now we're told in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when pressed even further by Pilate, these leaders come up with three charges that they present against Jesus. Number one, that he had subverted their authority. Number two, that he was going around teaching people not to pay taxes to Rome. And number three, he claimed to be Christ who was the coming king of Israel. Now, which one of those three charges do you think captured Pilate's attention? Look at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate couldn't possibly care less about the authority of the Jewish leaders. What would it bother him if Jesus subverted that? What is he supposed to do about one man telling someone else not to pay taxes, especially since it wasn't able to be proven and probably wasn't true? But this idea of a king, well, that's the number one reason that Pilate's in Jerusalem. It's his job to make sure that those kind of ideas don't spread. It's his job to squash that stuff. And so when Pilate summons Jesus and asks him if he's a king, here's what Pilate is asking him. He's saying, are you going to be a problem for me? Are you, are you an issue that I need to handle right now? And look at verse 34. Is that your own idea, Jesus asks, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests hand you over to me. What is it that you've done? I love what Jesus did there. He put Pilate on trial. Did you notice that he he answers his question with a question? He's like, do you really want to know Pilate? Or is that something that you heard about me and something you're trying to avoid? Do you you really want to know who I am? Are you really interested in the truth? Are you just seeing if I'm a threat to you? And you can imagine this doesn't sit well with Pilate. It ticks him off because he's not the one on trial here. And so he very dismissively and, and with racial undertones fires back, am I a Jew? It's like, Listen, it's your people who did this. It's your people who arrested you. It's your people who brought you here. It's your people who want you dead. Tell me, what, what did you do? Look at verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm the king. In fact, the, very, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. This is what Jesus is telling Pilate. He's saying, you don't have to worry about me. I'm not here for your authority. So I'm not here for the, the authority of those Jewish leaders out there. I already have my own kingdom, and it's not of this world. In fact, Pilate, if I, if I wanted your throne, if I wanted your little post, you would have known about it already. Because remember, in the garden, when Peter grabbed his sword, in the garden, when just the voice of Jesus knocked flat the entire detachment of soldiers, that was the time to attack, but Jesus has no interest in that. He has so little interest in the tiny amount of power and authority that Pilate and the Jewish leaders had devoted their lives to protecting. I mean, just think for a second of the irony of this scene. You have a group of Jewish religious leaders and a and a second-level Roman governor, each positioning themselves to protect their own throne and their own authority. And who stands among them but a king? And not just any king, but the king of kings. And then Jesus tells Pilate that, no, that he was sent into this world, right? That he's not of this world, but he came into this world by being born as a man, and he did so to testify to the truth, and he did so to follow his father's plan. This is the plan that John points out in verse 32. The plan then included being handed over to these Romans and being hung on the cross. Jesus Christ had to die that way. He had to die that way to fulfill all righteousness. He had to die that way to fulfill all prophecy. He had to die that way to fulfill the law. He had to die that way to fulfill and satisfy his father's wrath against sin. So no, he's, he is no threat to Pilate at all. He's not coming for his little throne. But Pilate doesn't understand at all what he is doing. He doesn't understand that Jesus is submitting himself to this death. He doesn't get that Jesus is surrendering himself to authorities way less powerful and way more weaker than he is. The only thing Pilate knows is that this man is innocent. He figured out quickly that he had done nothing to deserve death. And now Pilate has the assurance that Jesus isn't here to start some earthly kingdom or revolt. And so he goes out and tries to convince this crowd to let him release Jesus back to them. There's a custom at the time of the Passover, where one prisoner would always be released by Rome to the Jewish people. And Pilate suggests, let's use that and let's, let's just give you Jesus. But the crowd that was incited by the religious leaders, made up mostly of the religious leaders, demand that Pilate release a man named Barabbas instead. And in the place of the pure, innocent, spotless Son of God, they accept in their midst a the murderer. And so I want us to pause long enough this morning to just take a look at the motivations of everyone in the story. Starting with Pilate, we we can see that his motivation was entirely selfish. Sure, he does his job, investigates the matter before him, he asks the questions, but his loyalties ultimately lie with him. He doesn't much care about the Jewish leaders. He doesn't much care about Jesus, especially at first. The only thing that he investigates is whether or not Jesus will be a problem to him and cause revolt. And he will initially fight this death, but ultimately he won't care about justice. Because he's getting ready to relent and send a man he knows to be innocent to be executed. And it'll all be to protect his own hide. Then we have the Jewish leaders. when I mean, these guys, these guys are Unbelievable. Because they have, on this night and the following morning, been acting in deceptive and underhanding and really icky and secretive ways. They arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. They put him through a false trial in the wee hours of the morning. They take him to Pilate before the rest of the city is awake. And when asked what Jesus did to deserve death, they basically say, oh, he deserves it. Just trust us. We wouldn't have brought him here if he didn't. They're being underhanded they're being shady they're being covert they want someone else to do the dirty work for them they because they know how popular jesus is they know how bad a look it will be if they actually kill him they know it's a much better pr move to have rome do it for them and then there's something that we we need to read again in case you miss it the first time look at verse 28 you got to see this it says then the jewish leaders took jesus from caiaphas to the palace of the roman governor by now is early morning and listen to this part And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Anything in that strike you as weird? Let's just cover the last few hours again, just to make sure we understand. They bribed Judas and pay him off to betray Jesus. They arrest a man that they know is innocent of any crimes. They hire people and pay them to lie and be false witnesses during a the trial they hold in the middle of the night in secret. And they do it all because they want to murder this man, they want him dead. And yet, when they arrive at Pilate's palace and demand the execution of an innocent person, all of a sudden they're worried about the morality of their actions. All of a sudden, they don't want to step foot in a Gentile palace because that would make them religiously unclean. And therefore, they could not observe the Passover meal like good, religious, godly folk. So to clarify, lying's okay. Deceit, bribery, all good, right? False witnesses, secret trials, nothing wrong here. Murder, what's the big deal? Going into a Gentile man's house? No way. Won't do it at all. I mean, I couldn't be a godly person to do that, Right? How insane is that? What this does, what this does is it proves that even their religion was all about them. That their faith had nothing to do with them serving, honoring, or loving God. It did not strike their conscience or seem wrong to them at all if their actions hurt someone else. There was no conviction about them leading other people into sin. They felt no guilt about orchestrating others' downfall. But the moment that one of their actions would impact their view of their own piety or impact their view of their own spirituality or their ability to look religious in front of others, that's where they drew the line. This is why Jesus came. This is why he had to die. Because in the end, religion is no different at all. It is simply of this world. I mean, tell me, look, look, look at this story. What is different between the Jewish religious leaders and a Roman governor? There's nothing. Both take a pass on acting in just and fair ways. Both neglect to serve those they oversee. Both, when push comes to serve, looks out for themselves and look out for themselves only. And standing in direct contrast to all of it is Jesus, who looks at Pilate in the eyes and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have fought just like yours. If my kingdom was of this world, I would scratch and claw for any advantage over you. I would take your throne, Pilate. If my kingdom was of this world, I would be a problem to you because my motivations would totally conflict with yours because we'd both be looking out for ourselves. But my kingdom's not of this world. Because it's Jesus' kingdom that values selflessness. It's Jesus' kingdom that values humility and sacrifice for the good of others. It's Jesus' kingdom that had him in the exact place that he was in, that the almighty, all-powerful God who could stop any of this at any time, the one who knocked over an entire detachment of soldiers by speaking, the one who told storms to stop, and they did, the one who healed the sick and cured the blind and raised the dead, he is the one standing trial and being judged by a few priests and a JV second-level governor. And neither group is able able to see the irony that the only reason they can do so is because he's allowing it. Remember what he said in John 10, the reason that my father loves me is because I laid down my life only to take it up again. And then he said this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. See, Jesus' kingdom doesn't play by the rules of this world. His kingdom is not filled with people who are looking out for themselves, but those who actually serve others. Jesus' kingdom does not value power or might or valor or wealth or pride or success. His kingdom values meekness and humility and sacrifice and submission and grace. And I want you you all to know this morning that if you belong to Jesus Christ, right, you've been brought into that kingdom, and that is the kingdom that you must serve. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, tells us this. It says, Giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Verse 13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now that is Paul writing to the church at Colossus and telling them what happened to them when they believed in Jesus. See, your salvation is not some monopoly game where you get a free pass to heaven one day. All of us are born into sin and by our nature, we are sinners. So we rebel against the holy God by our thoughts, we rebel against him by our actions, we rebel against him by our attitudes and our intentions, the way that we look out for ourselves, the way that we're selfish, the way that we hurt others, the way that we lie, cheat, steal, oppress, look down on others, the way that we look for advantages over one another, the way that we hold grudges, seek revenge, on and on and on. We are sinners at our core. And so we belong to the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible says we are actually enemies of God. Because his holiness simply cannot contain or withstand our sinfulness. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, he died for those sins. He died for our rebellion. He died to take our place and take on the wrath of God for our sins for us. And what Colossians 1 is telling you there is that if you believe in him, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of his son, the kingdom that Jesus was referring to in John 18 when he talked to Pilate. That you are now redeemed, you are made whole, you have the forgiveness of your sins and you're brought into the kingdom of Jesus forever. And so first off, we have to say this, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never joined his kingdom, you've got to do that today. You have to ask him to use his death to take your place ask him to give you new life in him be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of god's son and you too can share in the inheritance paul talks about here the inheritance which is eternal life in heaven with god who made it all possible first off you've got to get that taken care of secondly if you've done that then you need to know and grasp that you you now belong to the kingdom of jesus And what that means is this, that you must live as your king did. For example, did you know that Jesus never used underhand or secret methods? Remember his trial, he pointed this out. He said he always taught in the open. He always taught in the exposed public places of the city. He was never sneaky. He was never deceptive. He was an open book that allowed people to see what he was really about, that he was a genuine item. And listen to what he tells us in Matthew 5. Matthew 5.14, he's talking to his followers and he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it, gets, it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you understand this morning that in the Bible, there is no such thing as a private faith in Jesus? That you called? to have an intimately personal relationship with Jesus. It is, it is to be the closest relationship in your life. And there are certainly times where you, are ne- you need to be in solitude in his presence. But your faith in Christ was never designed and never intended to be private. Your faith in Jesus is to flow out of you and bless other people. Your life now belongs to the kingdom of God and in that you are to impact others for the glory of God. It's simple, it's this simple, that where you've been placed by God, that place should be better off because you're there. You know that your spouse should be better off because they're married to you? That your kids should flourish and grow and thrive because they're under your care. Your neighborhood and your school and your place of employment, all of those places should be better because you're there. And you're there as a representative of the kingdom of God. You're there to make a positive difference in the life of others in the name of Jesus. That is your calling Jesus was selfless. He was so selfless that he went to the cross and suffered to die in our place for our sins, not his own. But Because Jesus always had in mind the glory of God and the good of others. And I want you to listen to what he tells us in Luke 9. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Listen to what we're told in Philippians 2. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus see, if you're in his kingdom this morning, you are to follow him down the path that he walked. You are to have the same mindset that Jesus had when he was here. You are to embrace this life of self-emptying and self-denying and self-sacrificing for the glory of God and the good of other people. Which just means this. It just simply means that your life cannot be about you anymore. That your gain cannot be your driving motivation, that your success, be it financially or personally or athletically or in in your career, or in any way cannot be the driving force of your life. Self-promotion and self-advancement simply are no longer allowed because you're in the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, you're called to humility, and humility is not thinking lower of yourself, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking about yourself way less, it's just your rights and your advancement and what you want, those things just aren't on your mind. It's not something that goes through your thoughts. It's not how you make decisions. This is living life without a victim mentality. This is recognizing that everything that happens to you, God can use to bring good out of it. It's, it's going from asking, why God, why me, to asking, what do you want me to learn or do in response to this, Lord? It's going from asking, What in the world are you doing, God, to asking, How can I bring you glory through this, Lord? This means that, that costs and sacrifice and pain aren't things that we run away from. They certainly aren't deal breakers when we make a decision. Acts chapter 5, the apostles, those early church leaders were flogged for teaching publicly in the name of Jesus. That means they were whipped with a whip 39 times, 39 lashes. And I want you to know this is no small whip. This is a whip designed to tear skin off of your body and leave deep bruises and contusions. There are multiple times in recorded history that people died from flogging. Yeah, I want you to see what the Bible tells us. These apostles' response was to this flogging in Acts 5.41. It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin. That's where they were flogged. Rejoicing. Don't miss that word. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were whipped and beaten to a bloody mess. And they rejoiced. They're happy about it. Because God had considered them worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, would I have the same reaction to that? Would you have the same reaction to that? I mean, I can turn even the smallest of inconveniences in my mind to me being a victim of unfair circumstances in my life. May Jesus help me. May may he help all of us to see what he's called us to. May he make us brave enough to not fear, but dare I say rejoice in the sufferings and costs of living for his kingdom while we're in this world. This means that we absolutely are to outright reject these false gods and these idols of comfort and security, that maintaining a certain lifestyle or budgeted way of living should not be ideals or goals for anybody in God's kingdom, but our aim should be this and this alone, that we march in step with our king, that we value the things that he values, that we serve like he served, that we love like he loved, that we live in this world but understand that we are not of this world that we represent him in all that we do. You see it's simply not good enough to just be good citizens of this kingdom. First Corinthians chapter 9 you're called to be ambassadors for Christ. So many followers, right, settle for being good citizens. We go to church, right, because that's what good citizens do. We pay our taxes. And when we tithe and give to his kingdom, we follow the laws of the kingdom avoiding public embarrassing sins, avoiding things that would bring him shame, and we think that being good citizens of his kingdom is what is asked of us, when actually it's way short of that. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to serve his kingdom where he places us. We're to represent our king by living for him and telling others about him and sharing his story and love with them and calling them to believe in him. See, good citizens stay where they are and affect no one else negatively, but ambassadors are sent and affect everyone else positively. That's the difference. And you've been called to be an ambassador for Christ. You're called to build his kingdom. Are you embracing this calling? Are you taking advantage of this one life that he's given you by his grace to make a difference for his kingdom? Are there people in your life that you're actively praying for, that you're actively serving, that you're actively investing in and loving on and witnessing to? Or are you like the Jewish leaders? That you're very spiritual, you're very religious, you have your traditions, but when push really comes to shove, you will decide to do what seems best and easiest for you in that moment see, we've got to embrace this calling, church. We just have to. And and to serve as a reminder of why and what our heart should be when we do this, God has given us this table of communion, this table of remembrance, this table that reminds us that ours is a kingdom built on the back of one whose body was broken and destroyed for us. The table that reminds us that that, ours is a, that our citizenship, citizenship in heaven was bought with the blood that poured down from the cross. The table that tells us that our kingdom was built and founded on sacrifice. It was purchased by selflessness and it runs on love and humility. So how have you played the victim recently? How is it that you've looked out for your own self-interest too much? How is it that you're keeping your faith a secret in private in order to avoid criticism of others? Is there something that God is asking you to do that you've neglected thus far and the reason is because you know there's a cost involved? And ask the Lord this morning to show you the places that you need to grow in humility. Ask the Lord to develop in you this heart of selflessness. Ask the Lord to give you the boldness to stop being a citizen and actually start being an ambassador and to give your one life for this gospel and this kingdom. Ask him for the grace for all the times you've gotten this wrong. I know several times this week that I failed at this. But his grace is abiding and it's new every morning and we can find that at the table today. And ultimately it'll be his grace that will allow us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what every one of us have been called to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing, selfless, humble example of Jesus. We thank you that in this moment that we get to come to your table, Lord, that we we get to pause and remember just his love, his humility on our behalf. And so God, I just pray that your spirit would work now. God, that you would reveal in me first and then in all of us, all the ways that we're living for ourselves, all the ways that we're being selfish, all the ways that we're playing the victim, all the ways that, that, that we are our own driving motivation and force, and help us to repent of those, help us to reject those, help us to plead for your forgiveness and grace for those. And Lord, may we embrace this mandate and calling and demanding of our King to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. We ask this in his powerful name. Amen. As we prepare for communion, let's turn to first Corinthians.